Hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Sami Khan, a filmmaker whose credits include the short films The Bride, The Workout, Habibi, and 75 El Camino, and the 2015 drama Koya, about a young man who travels from Canada to India to find the family he's never known. Most recently, he and Sriti Mundra made St. Louis Superman, which follows along with Missouri activist, politician, and battle rapper Bruce Franks Jr. as he works to pass legislation in the State House of Representatives while also grappling with profound personal trauma. It's currently screening as part of the Oscar Shorts package at a theater near you because it's up for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. And Sammy, Smriti, and Bruce will be at the Dolby Theater this Sunday to see how that goes. Sammy picked Daughters of the Dust, Julie Dash's evocative 1991 drama about a family gathering on an island off the coast of South Carolina in 1902. The first film directed by a black woman to receive a wide theatrical release, it's a challenging, poetic work about the scars of slavery and how they stretch across the African diaspora. Roger Ebert described it as a tone poem of old memories, which is a lovely way to frame it. It was also an art film that distributors had no idea how to market to a mainstream audience that saw Spike Lee as the face of new African-American cinema, and so it just sort of fell into oblivion for a quarter century or so, until Melina Matsukas and Beyoncé found a way to bring it back to life. You'll see. This is someone else's movie. I mean, I think the way I approach almost everything in life, particularly filmmaking, is intuitively... And there's there's only a few films in my life that I've seen that have kind of really uh, seeped into my subconscious and uh, into my bones. Um, a couple of Alain Rene's films, um, a couple of Terrence Malick films, and uh, this Julie Dash film. There's just something about the the kind of dream state it conjures that when I saw it, uh, I saw it in, in college and university. And, uh, like, that's the kind of film I want to make, you know, just like the way she's able to conjure a mood and a feeling and, and prioritize that, um, more than story. You know, I think that that's something that I deeply admire. Yeah. I have to admit, I hadn't seen it since, I guess, 92, whenever it played Toronto, whenever it actually made it out here. Uh, and then I picked up the Blu-ray. I found it in this great used shop in New York that I go to whenever I'm there, Academy <clears throat> on West 18th. If anyone's listening, it's my place and don't take my stuff. Um, but I found the, the Blu-ray there, grabbed it, brought it home, and then put it on the shelf and completely forgot to watch it until you picked this, at which point I pulled it out and was it is such a radically different experience from what I remember. I think I'd organized it in my head in a linear fashion, and then you see the film, and it's just, yeah, it's this experiential drift through all of these histories and all of these stories. I mean, right away, the score starts, right? It's kind of like droning scores, like drawing you it's in. A, yeah. yeah, and it's a really, for a film that's set in 1902, like as its linchpin, I guess, because it goes back a, a bit as well, it, that's a synth score for 1991. It sounds 90s, and it's a really that was really shocking to me as well. I didn't remember any identifying points to tell me when it was made because it feels so strange and timeless. But yeah, it grabs you with this these synth tones and then throws you into the past. It's strange too because rewatching it the other day, I was like, 
similarly because of the synth music, I was thinking of like Michael Mann. Yeah. You know, I was like thinking about like Manhunter and and Thief, and you know, he certainly puts a and was accused of being like a stylist over, a, you know, substance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, here it's like in Julie Dash's movie, they like blend so perfectly together. And I think the other reason why I picked it, which is kind of less ethereal reason, but Julie Dash hasn't got her due. No kidding. Um, and I mean, people, uh, film festival programmers, historians, they always say this is like one of the most important, you know, American films of the back half of the 20th century. But Julie Dash is still alive. Like, where is the recognition for her, you know, on a concrete level. Um, and you think of, uh, you know, male directors, white male directors who made one great music video in the 1990s. Yeah. And then they had, what, a, career they had a career forever, you know, Fincher and Jonathan Glazer and all those guys, Spike Jones, Michael Bay, Michael Bay. Yeah. yeah. And, but Julie Dash is like, not like she's struggled, but she's certainly, she's not, considered on the level of those guys you know i think she only was inducted into the academy like two or three years ago right when the restoration came out yeah that that i mean it was the beyonce effect right because lemonade borrows and quotes from from this film and suddenly everybody discovered it again the restoration is happening and people are talking about her again and then you turn around it's like julie dash didn't make another feature she worked in tv a lot but yeah what must it be like to have suddenly you know become relevant again that's not even fair because the film is the film has always been very important to anyone who connects to it i i feel like i would have been in my mid-20s when it came out and i i don't know that i was as overwhelmed by as by it as i should have been i guess and i'm trying to figure out why because it was right around the same time as um, just another girl on the IRT, and the, and you know post Spike Lee, or at least mid Spike Lee, black cinema's having a moment, and this comes out, and it just kind of goes sideways past everyone else, and maybe it was distribution, or maybe it was just that it is kind of impenetrable to a white, uneducated audience. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, I remember I enjoyed it, but I also never thought about it again. Yeah, and, and, yeah. I mean, it's not. It wasn't the same year. I think it was the next year but you know malcolm x came out 92 yeah 92 and i mean the way malcolm x opens is you know the american flag getting lit on fire you know so i think that and you think about what was going on in the united states at the time um that you know maybe it was easier to understand the way spike lee approached cinema in that film Mm. versus like this kind of um this poem on African-American experience in the United States, which like you said, is like, it's harder to wrap your head around. Yeah. And there aren't obvious comps. Yeah. And she makes it, it's not that she's creating barriers to entry, but by presenting it exactly as it probably was, where there's not a lot of exposition. They don't need to talk about their history because it's in them. It's, it's like they're living, they're still living through it. It's, it's only in the last, 10 minutes I think that someone really raises their voice and, and it all explodes but um, and she had said also I, I did a little diving into the, the supplements briefly <laughs> I 
until I found out there's a whole second disc that I didn't even notice because it was behind a booklet because I'm an idiot. Um, but but she uh, Dash talks about uh, avoiding the standard visual signifiers of, of slavery and the legacy of, of captive people. So you never see ropes. You never see... I mean, there, there are characters who have witnessed this stuff, but it's not represented in the, in the image of the film. But she does make sure that a lot of the women's hands are dyed indigo because that was another product of slavery was the dyeing process and the women were forced mostly women were forced to do that and so two or three of the older characters have these these vivid indigo hands and that's her signifier and again if you're me in 1991 and you're completely ignorant of that it goes right past you mm. so that's on me for not knowing it but i can only imagine what it would be like to know what that means see it and just have it float there for the entire film yeah yeah i mean the film does require you to bring so much to it i mean and I, like i said i saw it in in college so i don't think i quite understood the time period either but you know this is 1902 this is after slavery has officially ended mm-hmm. but this is the height of the backlash against the emancipation of african americans right so the kkk lynchings are in full effect and that's you know one of the major factors why their African Americans are leaving the South and you know, the film set off the coast of the Carolinas mm-hmm. and what I think Julie Dash, Julie Dash referred to as the Ellis Island um, of for African Americans um, it's not quite apt because you know Im- yeah, yeah yeah and immigrants were brought you know came here willingly and African Americans were brought here in bondage so mm-hmm. um so yeah, you have to bring that sort of that's that specter. You have to understand the specter and you know understand how to look for those signifiers. And that's another reason why I feel like the film is just so rich, you know. And it may it may be even a hundred more years, two hundred more years until it finally really gets its due. But I wonder. Yeah. the other thing too, because I was reading about it too, and I I knew it played Sundance, uh, and then played TIFF in the fall. And you think about that today, I mean, sort of being in the grind now of pushing a film and getting it out there. Like, if a film played Sundance and TIFF, there's only a few of those films that um, that do that every year, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't even know, maybe one or two. There weren't a lot, no. I mean, even Maiden, now, they're still maybe? kind of... Um, maybe? Yeah, what else? But maybe, I think Maiden did the opposite, actually. It played TIFF and then and Sundance. Then went to Sundance. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it strikes me as the kind of... Well, because TIFF is always... I mean, even then, I remember in 92, they played Reservoir Dogs, which had been at Sundance. That was the big deal then. Mm. But they've always been more about premieres and fall stuff. And generally, by the time TIFF comes around, the Sundance movies will have opened already. Yeah, yeah. When the sunshine opens in July and August, things like that. And then there was really only the festival circuit, right? Like, those movies weren't getting big releases. Um Miramax, as we now know it, well, as we knew it subsequently, it's not that anymore either, but that hadn't happened yet. So if you had a film in the world, it would play Sundance, maybe Cannes, maybe TIFF, maybe Venice. And even and, Sundance wasn't what it was then, because like yeah. you said, it's before Reservoir Dogs. So it's like Reservoir Dogs, I feel like, was the, you know, the so catalyzer. One of the catalyzers, even though it had been around for whatever, 10, 15 years by that point, it was still. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and it's like you could also look somewhat fondly at a time where these festivals, you know, the emphasis on artistic merit was greater 
than it is now. And sure, you know, yeah, it depends on now. It's really feels like it's more about who can you can get for the red carpet and who has a movie that they want to launch for the Oscar campaign, and then. Yeah, Daughters of the Dust is a film that has no concern with any of those things. It it doesn't. Well, now thirty years later, I'm I'm reading in the the intention, but it doesn't feel like she's chasing a certain type of prestige to win awards or be noticed. She just made this thing that only she could make this this statement of of place and time and and trauma that you know it doesn't need me. To be what it is, it doesn't need critical. I guess critical review. Ebert loved it, so that's facile. It probably wouldn't have found any kind of audience without support there. But it just—it feels like it really just arrives fully formed and is this thing. And maybe it's because she's never made another movie that we have nothing to compare it to. But you know, it just—it's this profound artistic statement about lives that were derailed by forces beyond their control, and that makes it completely universal. It's just told in such a strange elliptical way that it takes a while to figure out where everyone is in their development in their emotional lives right then when you see them and where we are and why that child keeps running through and disappearing and narrating the, the thing but it, it's yeah I, I i felt this time like i had completely slept on something and i feel bad about that yeah yeah i mean i agree i think I, and i kind of i was thinking about what movie i would you know, want to talk to you about and it kept circling through stuff and I was scanning the list of previous podcasts and there was one where I was like, okay, I, I thought about talking about that one but someone already talked about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem. It's an, now that there's like 270 episodes recorded, it's like, well, that's a lot of movies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's just, like I said, there's just something about this film that kind of seeps into you um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I also, I haven't seen it in a long time but, uh, What's interesting because uh, I don't know if you've seen her student film Illusion, which is about an African American actress oh, who's that, like passing. That's the forty minute one. Yeah, or is that the, there's is one it, longer one and one shorter one. I've only seen the shorter one. Um, yeah, it's like half an hour. I think. Okay. I think it's like half an hour, but it it is the narrative is like quite intricate, you know. So it's obvious she can do it that way, but then she chose for this personal story you know because she's the descendant of Gullah people mm-hmm. and um, even though she was born in, I guess in New York City that she felt this kind of this calling this deep calling to tell the story and that's something that I, I think is so uh, honorable as an artist yeah and the the thing that struck me this time was that it feels are there any interiors that, as we would understand them the, the whole thing feels like it's just caught in the moment it, there's an authenticity of space and place that really struck me everybody's sitting around outside yeah there's like that cabin but it's like almost open but it's air. like open to the elements yeah yeah it's really striking in that you never have a sense of anyone being trapped in a space that there's always room that this world is is all there is but it's plenty and uh, you know, you don't have to spend too much money on sets, obviously, but costumes are fairly simple, too. And you, it could be taking place right now. It could be taking place 100 years ago or 300 years ago. There's this timeless space that they all exist in that really works once everything starts running together, once all the timelines start to cohere and we understand that this is now and that was then and this might be both somehow. It's just the simplest staging and it really struck me that it's probably it was dictated by the economy of it, but at the same time, it's perfect. It's 
it's just such an intuitive, simple uh, platform to place everything on, I guess, and just let us figure out what else is around them. Yeah, I mean, it's a dream. You know, it's like even the way it's set up. It's mm-hmm. their, you know, Yellow Mary's on the boat with the photographer and her lover and their um, and her relative, and they're coming into, you know, the the island and. You know, that it's not short, you know, it's not like a brief one yeah, minute yeah, that yeah. goes on for 30 minutes. It's like kind of remarkable. This is kind of dreamlike, almost like, you know, going to visit Kurtz or something, you know, it's like you're on this river journey into, um, into this mystical place. It goes on for 30 minutes. And so, you know, I think she's just like priming us for that dream state and to, to step in and out. And I remember, uh, when, um, in like 1999 when Ebert had Scorsese on the show on his show to talk about like the best films of the decade and the thin red line was one of them and Scorsese talked about how you didn't need to start the movie at the beginning you know you could start the movie at like the 45 minute mark and then watch it and then pick it up again because it was like this this loop and you know that's like um you know that's a kind of tradition of African storytelling, um, but you find rare, especially with just kind of homogene- homogenization of culture, that it's this, we're, we're so expecting this linear narrative, and I don't know, our, our brains don't know what yeah. to do with the, the circle. Yeah, we have to be, I think, it, you know, in the case of something like Soderbergh's The Limey, mm-hmm. we, we're out of sight, we have to be told explicitly that it's going on, there needs to be a color coding or a reference of some kind that we can hook onto, but yeah, this was... This is just, we joined this world already in progress, and it's up to us to figure out what to pay attention to and who to listen to and what, what has meaning. But, yeah, I, maybe maybe that is it. Maybe it took 30 years for it to be accepted, in a, not accepted, but for that storytelling approach to be um, un... Uh, what's the right term? Maybe it took 30 years for the storytelling approach that Dash is using to become acceptable or to to arrive without decoration, without announcement. It's like there's no calendars, there's no clocks. It doesn't matter because they're living it all the time. Their past is their present and so Mm -hmm. and back and forth. And yeah, maybe that's it. The, The narration of the unborn child is similarly elliptical and, um, lyrical. It just tells us that whatever is happening isn't going to be something that we can fully understand at first glance. Yeah, and unlike, you know, you mentioning that, it's like, makes me think of Badlands, mm. you know, another Malick movie, but it's that's a journey. That film's like a, you're going on a journey with them, and mm. like even though the narration is dreamy, but there's no journey. They, the journey is on the boat, and then it ends because they've shown up at the island, and you're going in and out, and... Um, and yeah, and then you're under you're understanding, you know, that this child was the maybe the father fears as the product of rape and sort of trying to prove uh, her validity to him and um, and then of course it's like you're thinking of the broader, you know, the allegory of you know yeah. what Julie Dash may be saying with that and this people who are you know losing their home and having to flee their home. Um, but the the other thing that's like uh, pretty remarkable is like how meticulous 
it is and how like the compositions are just so rich you know and it's it's not uh it's not like a handheld i mean i keep going back to malik but i think that's like the closest comparison at least in american cinema it kind of is and when you brought up the thin red line it just clicked in a way that i had oh yes it does it kind of is the same i mean there's more death there's more threat but when it's over we end up where daughters of the dust is right like the the that the helmet with the bird of paradise growing out of it it's it's this is the world after yeah. the violence, and yeah. that's what we're seeing. But like, unlike Malik, though, where he like killed, you know, he shoots on sticks sometimes. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of handheld camera, like Jim Caviezel's in the water, and you know, doing whatever. Yeah. But this is this is all locked off. Uh, I think it's all locked off. I don't remember seeing a handheld shot. And then there's also a zoom. There's some yeah. There's some zooms and some pans. Yeah. But yeah. I think you're right. I don't know that it ever the camera ever physically is lifted up. So it it, it feels just like so meticulously composed and you know because I, I I noticed the budget too was like not cheap. It was like eight hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You know from PBS American Playhouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which in 1990 was quite a bit of money for yeah, the Playhouse, like a right? Couple like Smooth m- Talk was less than that. Oh yeah, and maybe it was. I think it was six hundred fifty thousand. Am I right about that? I might be wrong. And it was a few years earlier, but yeah, it's not a it's not a huge budget. I mean, and it's all in this the comps in the the costume design, in the actors, and in the art direction, and just like that, those frames are just so beautiful, and you know they have this this kind of this glow to them, and um, and. Like that idea of how she 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 will prioritize the dream over whatever kind of logical thing is happening. You're trying to piece it together, but you know there'll be these segues or these punctuation uh, moments on scenes where it's just the music sort of takes over, and you're watching somebody on the beach, or you're you're watching three or four characters just looking. You know, yeah. and I think that's that's like pure cinema in a way you know that's really like just pure cinema and you kind of like bring whatever um you know you have whatever you understand about this story whatever you understand about yourself and the world to those moments and i think that's for me that's like really really exciting where you're not just like being spoon-fed exactly what is going on in this moment like the narration there's not like a one-to-one relationship between the narration right Um, right. but you also brought up an interesting uh, thing uh, earlier when you were talking about uh, her aversion, which I didn't realize her aversion to sort of um, being explicit on the references to slavery. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it it, it, uh, uh, it it makes me think about Holocaust films too. It's like, so how do you, you know, like the 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 age old question of how do you document something that is seemingly you know undocumentable? Right. Um, and I think that's something that we're still struggling with. I mean, I think for uh, Jewish filmmakers, for African-American filmmakers, it's, uh, you know, it's obviously particularly difficult. But I was talking about this with um, the participant in our documentary about this, how just by chance he was like talking about he doesn't watch slavery films. And uh, I understand why, because like, there's something really simplistic about watching like a two-hour narrative about a character's journey through slavery right. you know in like a very linear way sure because there's a beginning middle and an end no matter where the story starts and stops we are released in the audience um 
Yeah, it is. It's something that's come up a few times in conversation with other filmmakers too. I um, when when I talked to Steve McQueen about Twelve Years a Slave, he said that he felt as an outsider, but also as an insider, like as a as an Englishman who has no family history of, of slavery of, of enslaved people in his ancestry. He's still a black man making this story, and that brought it own, that brought its own um, not baggage but responsibilities to it. And he became that's where he became fascinated with the patient camera that just stays and takes it all in and leaves it to the audience. And I wish I'd seen Daughters of the Dust, but again, by that point, because I absolutely would have asked him if he had seen it, because the patient camera is right out of this. The sense of spending time with these people in their lives and not trying to tell us how to feel about it and not inflecting the emotions um you mentioned the the scenes where people just sort of look off into the into the distance and it's up to us i think to interpret whether or not they're looking with longing or with dread because we don't have that information and on second viewing or third viewing maybe things start to clarify further and i kind of really want to watch it again right now just to see if any of this holds up or i'm just blindly theorizing but it feels like there is everything you need to understand the film is packed into it we just don't have the lexicon we don't have the the way to decode it and the thing you mentioned about the holocaust cinema being a sort of um two-hour window that has its own form the problem i have with so many of them is that unless you're watching if you're ever watching anything that's post, if you're watching films about survivors, there are conversations that just wouldn't be necessary, but they're purely expository. They're for us to understand people's torment and people's history, but you wouldn't say, hey, remember that time where we were all in the shower together? You just, it, the, I've, I've known some survivors and they just, they don't talk about it with each other. They don't talk about it at all. Didn't, unfortunately, they've all gone on. But, um, it's the same with, with this with this gathering here. These people are here to celebrate something, and the trauma is repressed at the minimum and locked down in other cases until it all finally boils over. But the whole point of it is that they don't discuss their past because they don't need to. They all know it, right? We're, we're, left, we're on the outside of that conversation until the very end when it finally bursts open, and that's a standard emotional catharsis in the third act, but at the same time, it's just the floodgates open to all the emotion that's been hidden for 105 minutes up, up until that point. Mm-hmm. And, it, um, you know, when, what you were saying earlier about just, like, the structure of conventional narrative and, you know, whether that... whether there is something really limiting about that in terms of just storytelling and trying to make sense of... Uh, sort of major traumatic moments like slavery or the Holocaust mm-hmm. and it's like step out and look at broader popular culture and sort of what's happened with the rise of the right, the far right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems like we haven't really done enough of a effective job of documenting the horrors of fascism, of white supremacy because they're kitsch, right? It's like there's there's an element of kitsch that appeals to a part of it. I mean, generally, some members of the far right believe those things, but I think there's also this idea of kitsch, whether it's like, you know, uh, what's the, there's like a video game of <laughs> you're fighting Nazi oh, werewolves. Wolfenstein. Uh, Wolfenstein, Wolfenstein, right? Yeah, right? yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's like, and is it possible that films like Julie Dash's are 
a better way of understanding this the inescapable horror of of bondage of slavery yeah. or, or of the Holocaust. Yeah, a genocide, whether it's slow motion or orchestrated, this sense of subjugation. I I would hope so. I mean, the thing that amazed me when to to leap over uh, when Phantom Thread came out a couple of years ago is that Vicky Kripe's character is very clearly Jewish and probably a Holocaust survivor. It never comes up, but it's in every hesitation, it's in every moment. Mm. And there were people who did not see it at all. And it's just like, oh, why is she so timid? He's such a lovely man. It's like, well, she's terrified of him because she's terrified of any white guy with power. After clear, like, just that, that floats there in such a way that it is, you could miss it if you didn't know, but how can you not know the history and the, the place and time that this thing is happening in? And that's how. It's just, you're right, it's receded in a way that it's become... You know, I fully understand why Jojo Rabbit is so divisive. I think it's great, and it's a really smart way into the concept of the appeal of fascism to the undereducated and how propaganda works and how someone looking for an identity will grasp onto whatever makes him feel strong and welcomed. But I get the other side of it, which is people who are so offended at the idea that you could make a comedy involving Hitler in any way, even though that's not really what that is, the, the reflexive reaction is, oh, no, you can't do that. That's obscene. I kind of understand that because at least it means they value the history enough to want to make sure its true horror comes through. And if you see the movie, it does. But I get the reflexive, you know, like the fear that it might cheapen it or, or reduce it. But I don't know how you break through to people who, you know, they see the Nazi imagery as oh yeah cool you know that that they got shit done that's i want to be part of that crowd i want to be in power because i don't feel like i have any i just i don't know how you get them through to the other side yeah i mean in the sort of a historical moment that we're living in too and we're talking about it, it pertains to like julie dash too it's where she is not i don't think she's taken um, she's respected the way she should be in this film is not respected the way it should be um, and I'm not talking about like uh, trolls in their basement you know on 4chan I'm talking about like kind of Oscar so white crowd yeah. where there's this tendency with social media just to celebrate the 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 last six months you know but let, let's look back at you know Julie Dash is what 70 now um, let's let's celebrate filmmakers who were you know who were sort of doing their thing before it was trendy, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the the it, it all it's, it's all connected. And I, as a filmmaker, I don't know what the solution is because part of me wants to you know take a sledgehammer to it. And actually, the other film I was considering was La Ain. Uh, but then I saw that yeah. you did it, so it's like that's kind of like the twin pulls of me. Do we want to like just take a sledgehammer to everything and blow it up, or do you take another approach where you know you try and use this kind of like dream state to to get into people's souls and you know kind of play the long game, I guess. Yeah, I wonder how Dash feels about it now. I mean, she's talked about it at length, obviously, uh, since the restoration, since the rediscovery, but. You know, if Beyonce can't get you back into the conversation, who can? Like, how do you, how do you push through? And and people who embrace Lemonade for its cultural references and its and its cinematic quotations, they absolutely got it. But it didn't break through into the larger conversation. It's um, 
it's it's a weird and frustrating place where you know joker can simply copy scenes from taxi driver and the king of comedy and everyone immediately starts talking about scorsese all over again plus he has a movie out and all of that but it's just slavish replication lemonade is doing something with the images and asking you to figure it out the same way daughters of the dust is doing something with its entire narrative and, and demanding that we participate and it's like we're kind of wanna you know just it, it when the when the the mushy stuff the simpler stuff is so much easier to sell of course it's going to be an uphill battle but it's just i wonder how she feels about the film's impact on the larger culture that way through the resonance rather than the actual film itself yeah i, I mean i think the other supporter she had although i don't know if beyonce was ever explicit about referencing it but i mean it's clear that's that's in there is Ava DuVernay, and I think that's like Ava DuVernay is sort of the descendant of Julie Dash, even though you know Ava DuVernay is like kind of a more much more conventional filmmaker with her feature work, but yeah. you kind of feel that um, that soul in her work, and um, and that sort of that need to make sense of the past and like make sense of trauma, um, and you know. Julie Dash directed two, I think, two episodes of uh, Ava's show, Queen Sugar. Mm. Um, so she's, you know, tried to pay it forward or pay it back, yeah. whatever one it is. Um, and uh, yeah, but I mean, it shows that the I think the space, and this is how the business has changed in those 30 years, but the space with, you know, sort of call like Ava the descendant of Julie Dash in, in that tradition, it's like, Ava has like a very narrow, you know, window to, to work in. And yeah. she does tremendous, I think she does tremendous work, like uh, the 13th and, um, you when know. When you see us. Yeah, yeah, when you see us, it's like she's able, you know, she's brilliant, like to be able to move back and forth between doc and fiction and sort of, you know, that, like, uh, you know, that uh, historical fiction. Um, yeah, but, uh, we need a new we need a new name for that now, don't we? Because what Ryan Murphy is doing with American Crime Story yeah, isn't really OJ, the same yeah. thing, right? As as what she did with the Central Park Five. But the the other thing that amazes me about her is that she Ava Duvernay is that she seems to know exactly where she needs to be at any given moment. Like she's with with Array, the distribution network that she set up in the U.S. She's just right there in this pocket, and she was a publicist for. 30 years maybe longer even I mean that I knew long? Her, yeah I knew her back in the early 90s I think oh wow I was stunned to find out the other day I accidentally called her I was just mm-hmm. I was going through my contacts and I hit the wrong thing and it just dialing Ava DuVernay it's like there's no way that number works it's also like <laughs> she's not going to want me to bother her but yeah like it's that number's been in my phone forever since before I had a phone I suppose and um she's always been like part of this orbiting the conversation and now watching her be the sun and be the center of it is just thrilling because it's something that she's been clearly wanting to do forever but never had the right way in and then she made um a small feature and then she made a bigger feature and then she made the giant disney thing and then she went right back to doing stuff that was more suited to her which i think is the smart move she didn't try to do another giant tentpole a wrinkle in time yeah it's not her fault i don't think you can make a movie out of that book not really successfully and then she's just doubled back on stuff that actually matters which yeah, good for her. And yeah, I didn't know she'd, she'd uh, brought Dash onto Queen Sugar. That one went past me completely. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, the thing you think about 
too when you're describing Ava's career is like was she looking at Julie Dash's career and like what happened to her um, but certainly the space uh, uh, for an African American woman filmmaker today is like not like it's you know you're sitting pretty but it's like there's a much bigger space because of Ava because of Julie Dash um, but you, you wonder if that sort of Ava was like looking at how you know because she was savvy as a publicist like thinking about like these moves one to the other and and now she can like you know she, she, there's there's very few people I have in the show business who I have the respect that I do for Ava DuVernay but she is you know she's incredible and you know that that she supported Julie Dash or supported her Julie Dash is like an accomplished TV director but you know partnered up to her and you know did pay it forward I think sure means a lot I mean I think at this point whether you whether she's successful or not you'd still have to to hire her you have to seek her out and know who she is and what she's capable of it's something that I guess happens you know the next generation hires the the idol the mentor they become the people who can give the opportunity to the mentors in the second phase of the career but yeah, I can't. I'm still surprised Dash never made another feature. I mean, yeah, I, think, I mean, go back to like the the thing where it's like there's a visual trick in a music video, you know, and then that guy goes on to make Alien Three, you know, yeah. or like even make, gets another band notice. But you make this beautiful feature that has, you know, you're talking about like the use of exteriors and natural light and just like the art direction and. You know why wasn't she directing Alien Three? <laughs> Not like she yeah. would want to, but you know why didn't she get a chance to do like an indie feature? You know, carte blanche like Spike Jones or Jonathan Glazer or you know. Yeah, I mean, would it have been because it was the wrong kind of black cinema? Movies made by black women just didn't catch the distributors' eyes the way that John Singleton's Boys in the Hood did, and the way the Spike Lee stuff did. Even, you know, Ernest Dickerson, working as a cinematographer, then made a couple of horror movies, then made Juice. And like, there's this definition of what black movies should be, and it's being handed down by white people. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, the elephant in the room, too, and we're two guys talking about a female filmmaker, sure. but is not just race, but her gender, and because gender and sexuality is, like, a very big part of Daughters of the Dust. Yeah, oh, and, absolutely. And, you know, female affection for one another, and also, like, male rage both the off-screen rape that's happened but also you know the the husband who's trying to make sense of like how he you know how he deals with the fact that his wife was raped um and i think you know we're talking like a week before the academy awards where again like in the narrative categories through women were shut out and that's an ongoing problem that this sort of embedded misogyny and patriarchy is is really difficult to shake so you know julie dash had and has this twin problem of dealing with white supremacy and anti-black racism but also dealing with misogyny and the fact that just by virtue of the fact that she feels like i'm telling the story that i want to tell that 80 90 percent of viewers are just going to like turn off because they're it's so deep-seated in them whereas like the spike joneses and you know david finchers or even like john singleton right it's like this kind of those films are very male films you know i mean it's boys in the hood yeah yeah you know gang violence and ice cube and yeah you know guys beautifully lit and photographed just sort of drafting on the back of of the spike lee films in terms of the the popular narrative where it just slots right in 
And yeah, here are these, you know, what, what were the three or four? I, mean, I know I'm going to forget one and I apologize in advance, but there was Dodge of the Dust and Just Another Girl on the IRT and The Watermelon Woman, Cheryl Dunye's film was right around that same time. And they were all in the festival circuit, but they never made it into the larger theatrical release. They, they opened, but they played the Angelica or the, mm. the Blue or the Carlton here. And they were gone in a couple of weeks. And... You know, Boys in the Hood ran for months, and Do the Right Thing ran for longer than that, and Jungle Fever was right around that. Like, they're all there, and Spike Lee is working on Malcolm X right then for Warner, and it's, yeah, it's just a different stream entirely. Yeah. And, yeah, it turns out some of the films that nobody saw are the ones that should have endured. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it is that sort of, that that double bind of, like, being a black woman um, is really, really difficult, and, I mean, Spike Lee is still dealing with accusations of misogyny and that hasn't hampered him in his career mm-hmm. and you know you look at julie dash's movie and just the sort of beautiful articulation of the story it's like why isn't this movie celebrated and the, i mean we know the reasons why it's not um i mean it is a difficult movie but you know there's also this year there's like lighthouse movies that are challenging or you know even hereditary you know it's i mean playing with genre and stuff like that but this is a film that should have been celebrated and should be celebrated today and you know if there is like this kind of um celebration of diversity let's like let's not you know as a as a kind of counter to oscar so wait let's like not forget about the people who were fighting the fight 30 years ago or 100 years ago like oscar michaud and filmmakers like that mm-hmm. um and i, I think i i find that frustrating sometimes and because there is a there's there's a limitation like that window that we're working with today is like so limited narratively you know you can't do things like uh like daughters of the dust it feels like it feels like we're s- the I don't know, I'd be curious yeah. what you think too as a critic. Now cause... someone would probably pitch it as a Netflix series and it would be organized story by story. Right. right? You couldn't tell it the way it's told here. But I think we're in a place now where anyone can get a movie made as opposed to, you know, back when it took eight hundred thousand dollars to make a movie on film with a crew and everything. Now you can shoot a film on an iPhone or you can shoot a film with a, a reasonably small consumer camera and it will look competitive if you have a good story if you have a good editorial structure you can make a movie and or get people in front of it or get it in front of people but what you can't do is explain something complicated and hope people are going to listen to that explanation that's the biggest problem if something is really challenging the lighthouse as much as you know as weird as it is it still breaks down to two guys go crazy in a lighthouse mm-hmm. it's a sentence yeah how do you even describe daughters of the dust you know like it's a, a family gathers for a ceremony for a reception and copes with hundreds of years of internalized trauma. I mean, yes, I guess, but that doesn't tell you what this film is or how it does it. And I wonder how you would do it now. You could probably do it through, you know, small indie style, dialogue heavy, but you'd lose the beauty. You'd yeah. lose the, the, the evocativeness of it. Yeah, like the, spa- the space, this kind of space between sort of experimental strand of cinema and like the narrative cinema is like gone you yeah, know yeah. i think that that's i think that's going to be a problem because it's some some so many filmmakers came out of that even like the music video guys where those are kind of experimental films right and it's like you play with form and you push it and so but now we're sort of 20 years in i feel like where things have really 
kind of ossified yeah. you know like the the storytelling the the miramax storytelling um oh, yeah and like the, uh yeah what an indie is what right? an like indie expectations of exactly yeah, ossified, calcified those are exactly the right words yeah um but uh yeah i, I mean I, I just like go back to just the the brilliance of the filmmaking and uh you know the the that also because like some of the performances are kind of stilted you know Mm -hmm. it's not like occasionally it's like not naturalistic you know there is a kind of formality to them but uh the fact that you're still kind of subsumed in this world and um and you know i was also thinking about the markers of when to place it i think the only way you know it's the, the the photographer the outsider who comes in it's like his wardrobe right it's yeah. like kind of the thing because everybody else is wearing something that could be from the 16th century yeah, yeah, yeah. or present day but he's got this kind of like you know ragtime hat and then he brings out the camera the at some point. yeah the yeah equipment was the tell for me yeah so it's like you've got this 40 year part you're 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 working with yeah, there yeah. um but i mean the and I just give a shout out too to the to the production designer and the costume designer um, because it's like so often the cinematographer is the only one that gets credit, um, but also the locations team, which is just like so sensual and beautiful. This like beach and I've, I just like never get sick of seeing it. You know, it's like there's just so much to soak in, and you know you want to you you want to feel the place as a filmmaker, and she does such a good job of doing that. Yeah, the texture of it. I was really surprised seeing the restoration. It looked better than I saw it. It looked better than I remember it. Looking on film, just because someone really took the time in in, in the uh, the coloring stage to make sure the lighting is appropriate and the color balances are, are warm in the way that they're supposed to be. I, I mean, obviously, I assume it's all guesswork. Mm. I would have seen it on a much played festival print in right. 35, <laughs> 30 odd years Dragged ago. around the world. Yeah, yeah but I still it, remember how how you're immediately just surrounded by space and the light and, and the, the beach versus the forested area where, you know, people are penned, they're, they're not penned in because there's still so much sky, but there's just more stuff. There are trees, there's grass, there's everything to interact with that they're working their way through and past. And then you just get this perfect clarity, even the boat. There's, there's a moment early on where, um, where, I want to make sure this I'm getting this right, but I, I actually wound it back watching it because it's suddenly um, there's a close up on, on Yellow Mary and she's isolated, even though the someone is directly behind her. It's just the way the camera angle is, but mm. she's alone. You can sort of see the, the, the line of his of his sleeve at the very edge of the frame. And that just sense that she's telling the story and all of a sudden we're really in tight on her and there's nobody else there. Everyone else has disappeared while she's talking. And I, I think that was my first hint that I was going to have to work harder mm. because everyone's alone in this movie. They're all alone with their thoughts. They're all alone with their history. It's shared, but as you know, as we see with everybody struggling to process what's happened to them as it relates to what happened to someone else or whether it's just their own stuff, they're all just so isolated. And I, I, this time through, I was trying to figure is that why the unborn child only shows up in the photographs because she's like a collective manifestation? Mm. Or is it just... A cool gimmick that worked in the moment to suggest something un- unearthly, and I don't know. 
and I really want to find out, so I'm going to go back in and watch it again, but mm. I don't think I'll find out. I don't think it'll ever fully reveal itself. Yeah, yeah, you can so, always searching for those answers. Yeah, there's so much space, but everything is so self-contained. Yeah, and I mean, like, the the, the metaphor of the, the, the rape, too, it's like this trauma that's just, like, hanging over this family, and it's kind of like one of the one of the sort of markers to give you that sense of the trauma of the the place and what's happened to these people Mm -hmm. and you talked about how difficult it is to sort of uh describe and summarize the film and it's interesting reading the summaries like i've got the new york times review in front of me and i think stephen holden did it um but so often they talk about what's about to happen that never happens in the film right is like them leaving yeah right but it's like that never happens you know it's just like the you know the the, the yeah, moment before we leave them yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 so that's like the only way really we have to kind of simplistically and um summarize what's happening in the film is like what doesn't happen um but uh that like that moment i mean i think to bring it back to the broader historical moment is like it's a really loaded and powerful moment in american history where you know african americans were being hunted down and lynched um and that's like you have to understand that you have to you know if you don't understand that and you know we're you you won't experience the film the way that you you should and unfortunately i think that's a lot of people these days um and i think that period in american history from the end of the civil war to the first world war is like kind of forgotten i mean i think it's totally forgotten to be honest i think yeah, it's i like, mean collectively it's as though we went what we america went straight from reconstruction to the depression which i guess it did but there's you know 40 years in there yeah and it's 40 years of real ugliness in the south anyway certainly i mean yeah it's, this is the this is an island off the coast of south carolina they maybe can feel a little safe but it's still very, very close, mm. both physically and temporally. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. There are really, it's sort of, it is kind of just glossed past. Like we went from the 13th Amendment to the telephone and the uh, and the light bulb. And then all of a sudden everything is as we know it now. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, we're talking now, Watchmen aired a couple months ago and people's minds were blown about like <laughs> the, right, the, the Black Wall Street. Yeah, Black people Wall Street. It's like people's minds were blown. What? This happened? And, uh, you know, I think at the time, maybe a week after uh, Watchmen aired, I was in Arkansas at the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival. I don't know if you've ever been down there. It's an interesting place, Hot (laughs) Springs. Um, But then, of course, there's like in Arkansas, a few hundred miles from Hot Springs was a similar incident where, you know, white residents just went on a rampage and destroyed like a a prosperous African-American uh, yeah. town sure and the south and the the west of the United States are just littered with those stories I actually I should not absolve the north or I should should not absolve Canada but you yeah. know um, I think that that's like that's that's crazy I mean it's cr- it's crazy and I think that's where as storytellers we have to figure out how are we going to you know reckon with just like the last 150 years to start with that or maybe the last 50 years to this point and you know and with 
I think I, I fear with the consolidation of media that it's going to become increasingly difficult. Like I, I'm really scared of Disney owning everything, right. you know, and I'm even scared of like, you know, cause you're dependent on them. They own, they own everything. Yeah. They own everything. And I met a lovely person who works at Disney plus documentary films, but it's like, are they going to do a story that's really challenging of the Chinese government? Right. Of like what's going on with the Uyghurs right now. Um, or will national geographic films do that, which they make great documentaries, but they're owned by Disney. Yeah. You know, and, and Disney Plus just launched a, uh, a documentary television series about sight uh, sight dogs training, like seeing eye dogs, and, and training and adorable Labrador puppies. And it's like I absolutely believe that that's a, a story worth telling, and I love puppies, but that's not necessarily going to change the world or challenge anybody's expectations of how documentary should work. Absolutely, yeah. And here we have a film like Daughters of the Dust that does both, and it's like a product of its time like we're before sort of commercialization of Sundance before the commercialization yeah, yeah. uh, commercialization of TIFF before like this like Miramax well, film in general yeah right it's like and was Sex Lies and Videotapes is the same year was it? Uh, 89 it was 89 oh, okay it's a yeah. couple years but before they're, they're in the same pipeline right yeah so it's like you know it's I, I don't know I, I'm, I'm scared and I because I, I, I think that um, in being of Indian descent too that in in that case like cinema for 40 50 years was so central to the idea of like the secular republic mm-hmm. um and uh gave people an understanding of how they were in it together um you know there <laughs> there can be a downside to that with like propaganda sure you yeah. know um but you know india was mostly a democracy um and, and similarly here in North America, it's like cinema needed to push the envelope and needed films like Daughters of the Dust to do that. And I don't see where in this kind of band of the mainstream where that's happening. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I have no idea. I mean, there, there's the one side of it is that a lot of television and a lot of, of cinema are becoming much more aggressively diverse. So you can see yourself represented in a way that maybe it wasn't possible even 15 or 20 years ago mm-hmm. but the stories they're telling are generic mm-hmm. are still you know they're thrillers or comedies or there's nothing that talks to an individual experience in the same way as, as a movie that is entirely fabricated and created by one person's vision yeah or shatters your conventions of what the form is mm, I mean yeah, like the, yeah, the closest comparison is probably something like Moonlight you know which was like an enormous success um so maybe I'm being too pessimistic because <laughs> it does happen. Um, and there are films like that, that that do it. But I do fear that with the increasing consolidation of media companies, the, the band is going to get narrower and narrower. And, you know, before too long, you know, this like the dystopian reality uh, will be upon us. And, yeah. I mean, One entertainment stream. I mean, as long as there are movies like The Farewell and The Souvenir showing up, I feel like I can hope that the success or the at least the critical recognition for those films will drive further work like that but you still have to be a Lulu Wang or a Joanna Hogg to make that movie you have to yeah. have that perspective that vision and that empathy it is a lot easier to make a Joker movie like a lot easier and that's yeah, yeah that's not what we need although that's not Disney either so that's something <laughs> Disney can push against it yeah um, so the final question on the on the podcast is always the same, and I'm not sure exactly how it will work 
in relation to St. Louis Superman, but I'm really curious to find out. Um, is there anything of Daughters of the Dust that you have used or borrowed or referenced or absorbed into your own creative DNA? Absolutely. I mean, I think what I take from Daughters of the Dust is that that sort of desire to slip into the subconscious of the viewer. Okay. You know, and to kind of conjure the dream state. You know, and I mean, there are degrees to that. Some films you need to do it more than others. You know, some films you want to do it more than others. But in in St. Louis Superman, I shot much of the movie. I shot about like 80% of it along with a really talented filmmaker friend of ours named Chris. Um, but like for a doc, I think that's like, that's an exciting new frontier, you know, is to like, to bring this sensibility, this kind of like Julie Dash dreamlike sensibility to a doc. And you see like films like Honeyland that are like that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that I think is like a new frontier in documentary filmmaking is like, there's still this really journalistic um, duty that, the powers that be in documentary film feel actually especially in this country it's true in the united states but it's especially true in canada and um and i think that's like that's maybe a way to kind of push against the pessimism is like to open up documentary film more to be like you know narrative cinema and getting into your subconscious so you can have a political film but it doesn't have to be journalism you know and i think also james longley is a filmmaker i don't know if you saw his films he did his first one's called gaza gaza strip and then he did iraq and fragments yes of course about like 10 years ago yeah that was a while yeah it's a while ago I, I think he had a film a year or two ago um at sundance but you know so does that answer your question yeah i think so yeah well certainly um st louis superman has moments of really powerful intimacy and not just in the quieter moments i mean even when you when you see like i'm thinking about the rap sequences where you have like you get a look at this guy in his moment in this creative space and you understand so much more about him than you do when he's sitting still you're seeing a side of this person that just was hidden from the camera from other people and it's that was really jarring because it made me i mean i knew he was also you know like he's a politician he's an activist he's a battle rapper that's sort of the cell but to see it happen and to see that transformation was really shocking to me and to capture that and then find a way to express it editorially I, yeah that's kind of like the explosion at the end of daughters of the dust when somebody just finally can't stop herself from speaking uh, that resonated with me it felt like a it didn't really hit me until I watched Daughters of the Dust again and thought, oh, right, that's what that is. But, yeah, I can sort of see it. Yeah, I mean, I, and it takes also participant in your documentary who is uh, trusting and um, brave enough to be vulnerable like that because yeah, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't always happen, you know, and you can't, like, the, you have to change the form a little bit to sort of give you that that intimacy. But, you know, I think... I was blown away. I am still blown away by the opening scene with Bruce and his son King on the stoop. It's like how he was able to just be, you know? It's like that's what you want. In fiction or nonfiction, that's what you want is someone just to be just how they are. And both Bruce and his son are just being there. They're just being themselves. And like the greatest compliment Bruce ever gave me as a filmmaker was he 
says like I had no idea you were filming then <laughs> and we were, I was filming on prime lenses you know much of the film is 95% of the film is prime lenses fixed lenses mm -hmm. so I was close to them you know I'm just like lying on the sidewalk in front of them but you know it, I think it takes like a special relationship um, so I hope that uh, I can come close to replicating in future projects but we'll have to see um, and I think that that's one thing you know I'm you know, I'm 40 now, so I'm not a spring chicken. Um, but like, I've found that the one thing that I know I can do is I can give you that intimacy. You know, I, I have a way somehow of like making feel people feel comfortable both in fiction and nonfiction. So I probably should have done something with it earlier, but I was trying to <laughs> like figure it out. Yeah, you know? it, takes, it takes a while before yeah. we know what we're good at. I think. Yeah, yeah, and that also that makes me think of Julie Dash too. Where she was, I think she was forty-one when she made this film, forty something like that. And you know, it's uh, the 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 you know, like there's the Malcolm Gladwell article on like uh, Picasso versus Cezanne. You know, or, I right. think it's Cezanne. It was like in his forties when he had his Renaissance. So yeah. take heart in that. Yeah, yeah, you still have time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My thanks to Sammy Khan, who's in Los Angeles right now, psyching himself up to attend the Academy Awards on Sunday for St. Louis Superman, which is currently in theaters as part of the Oscar Shorts documentary program. Find out where you can see it at shorts.tv. In Toronto, that'd be the Tiff Bell Lightbox and the Fox Theater. Thanks also to Ingrid Hamilton. She knows what she did. You can find Sammy on Twitter at SammyConFilm, all one word, and you can find Daughters of the Dust in an excellent Blu-ray special edition from Cohen Media Group. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel, on Netflix in Canada and Canopy in the U.S., and available for sale on iTunes in the U.S. as well. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're pretty good. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. See you next week. And Sammy, Christy, best of luck. <laughs>